This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Today's episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Care.com, the easy and reliable way to find care for everyone in the family when and where you need it. With a premium membership, you can purchase background checks, view potential caregiver profiles, and contact potential caregivers. Their site is incredibly easy to use and will give you peace of mind when hunting for care. To save 30% off a Care.com premium membership and receive a $15 credit that you can use toward paying your caregiver when you use Care.com's convenient payment platform, visit Care.com slash history when you subscribe. Hey, everybody, we have one more live show coming up this fall. On Thursday, October 6th, we will be talking about the Reynolds pamphlet at Hudson Mercantile in New York City. This is an all-ages show, but we are talking about Alexander Hamilton's torrid affair, so judge your own family's ages accordingly. If you'd like to get tickets, you can go to NewYorkComicCon.com slash events slash NYCC dash presents. You do not need a New York Comic Con badge to attend this show. It is open to the public. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we recently shared our panel from Salt Lake Comic Con where we spoke with authors who wrote fiction inspired by history. Uh, but that was just the first of two live shows that we did while we were there, having a fantastic time. Uh, the other, the one that you'll hear today, is much more along the lines of our regular narrative format. It was just that we shared it with a live audience. This one's a fun ride. It's about outlaws of the Wild West. Specifically, a famous hideout in Utah and the very famous scoundrels who would sometimes sometimes hole up there. Uh, that's all covered in the show, though, so we are just going to jump right in. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. We joke that there are times when we kind of want to switch that up and pretend to be each other or just subliminally we our brains want to throw out the other name i don't know why more than once i've opened my mouth and almost holly fry has come out of there and i'm like what is happening to me today that's a job you do not want (laughs) (laughs) uh 
But at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, a chunk of really rough and unwelcoming territory in the Canyonlands area east of the Dirty Devil River became a safe haven for scoundrels. And I know we all love scoundrels a little bit. Uh, one of the most famous scoundrels is Butch Cassidy. And he and his, oh, he gets the applause. I mean, <laughs> I see the appeal, let me tell you. Uh, he and his wild bunch frequented this area, which came to be known as Robber's Roost. And there is a lot of outlaw history connected to Robber's Roost. A lot. Uh, so much that there's really no way we can cover it all in the course of an episode. So know that if you came hoping to hear some piece of like your favorite, uh, lore around the roost, like we may not hit it. Uh, but instead we're gonna cover an assortment of some of the people who shaped the legend of Robber's Roost. We will talk about Butch Cassidy, I promise. Can I interject my incredibly <laughs> embarrassing story about, about Butch Cassidy you and can, Sundance and it's, Kid? It's so dear to me. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in the southeastern United States, not anywhere near Utah, I believed until Holly said, why don't we do a podcast on Robber's Roost that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were characters made up by the same guy who wrote The Princess Bride (laughs) for a screenplay to be played by Paul Newman and Robert Redford, my mother's two favorite actors of all time. She really did. I didn't know they were real humans. Those are real people. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I lived for a brief time when I was tiny in Arizona, so I guess that's how I had my in. Had I spent more time in the South growing up, maybe I would uh, not have known that. I thought they were made up. Uh, and even today, getting into Robber's Roost is a really big challenge. Uh, the U.S. Department of the Interior Bureau of Land Management actually mentions on its information page that... Uh, you really shouldn't try to get into Robber's Roost without a four-wheel drive. And it has this great warning that reads... Chances of encountering other users is low, and any kind of emergency response will not be fast, considering the remote and isolated nature of the roost. Cell phone service throughout the region is unreliable at best. So even today, it's very difficult to get into there and communicate from there. So at the time that we're talking about, it was a really isolated space. That reminds me of a a sign that we saw while I was on my honeymoon in Iceland, uh, and it was at the geysers. And it was basically like the water coming out of the ground here is literally almost boiling. And it had a number of hazards that might happen to you because of this literally boiling water. And then it ended with the sentence, the nearest hospital is 68 kilometers away. (laughs) Yeah, I I love a state run or government agency that's just like, we really can't help you if you're stupid. We just can't. We can't. can't, I'm so sorry. We We can't cover the spread. So Robber's Roost is not the only hideout in this general area. There's a whole swath of land that runs through it that came to be known as Outlaw Trail because of all these many hiding places that were all over it. Holly was telling me at lunch that Robert Redford was actually walked the whole thing. Yeah, he hiked the Outlaw Trail in preparation for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I think it was for National Geographic that he wrote an article about it. And I was not able to get my hands on a copy of it uh, because it's in their archives and it's not one you can just access online. And we didn't have enough time for the turnaround for them to send me a copy or digitize it and get it over. But it's sort of fascinating that he went ahead and did it because that is no small undertaking. No, and it's still really difficult to access. Pretty much the only way in is at the mouth of the Dirty Devil River. And another spot to tuck out of sight, 
away from the law on the Outlaw Trail was Brown's Hole, which sits in Colorado on the Green River. It's at the meeting point of Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. It's actually now known as Brown's Park because that just sounds nicer than Brown's Hole. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you mention it. (laughs) Right? Like, I don't want to hide out there. (laughs) Um, If you travel on the Outlaw Trail into south-central Wyoming, you could also lay low at a place that is also very famous called the Hole in the Wall. And on that 200-mile stretch that kind of covers the spread of these three hideouts, there were also ample lookout points and caves. So there were a lot of little mini hideouts that were not quite so, I'm using the air quotes when I say civilized, as those three places that had some amenities built in. Robber's Roost specifically is made up of just canyons and cliffs all over the place. They're the result of thousands and thousands of years of erosion. So all this really craggy uh, terrain and an almost maze-like set of natural features are what really make it into just perfect hiding spots. There are tons of little places that you can tuck yourself away and not be easily spotted. Uh, This area was described in one of the books that Holly read for researching this podcast as, quote, the geography of despair. It's such a poetic way to say it, but really it's like you're going to die there. Um, (laughs) But in addition to the easy hiding, Robert's Roost also had some legitimate appeal to bandits. And not just bandits. We'll get to some of the people that actually lived there as well. Because it had dependable water sources in the form of several springs that were there. And we don't know the origin of the moniker Robber's Roost for the area. It predated the Wild Bunch by a significant margin. As early as the 1870s, though, outlaws were using the trail to uh, take stolen horses away from authorities. One of these people was a man known as Cap Brown, and he'd been stealing horses for quite some time before things really got hot for him. And he would steal uh, horses in Utah, and then he would sell them to mining operations in Colorado. Yeah, that was really sort of the business of rustlers at the time, was to supply these mining operations. And often, Cap Brown sort of served as this sort of middleman. He would purchase stolen horses, and then he would drive them through the roost, which was incredibly difficult, to their destination to sell at a markup. And while we are by no means endorsing or excusing this behavior, uh, we really do want to kind of acknowledge that there was no doubt that this was really, really hard work. I mean, for doing illegal things, he was really earning his money. (laughs) Um, Moving horses through the roost was really tricky. Uh, Sometimes sand would actually have to, you'd have to have a man running ahead of them and throwing sand under the horse's hooves as they moved so that they would have something to kind of grab onto, like a little bit of traction. But the horses would still struggle and slip just the same. Uh, One of the books that I read described the smell of burning hooves as they slid on rock because the horses were just trying to pull up and they were so heavy they were grinding down as they were sliding. That's a horrible smell, I imagine. Holly, that's horrifying. I'm so sorry. I'm glad you left that out until just now so I could be horrified (laughs) along with everybody (laughs) out in the audience. Uh, Up to the 1880s, there was really no development in this area either. But in the 1890s, a Denver tailor decided to give up city life for the sake of his health and then to come for this strange forsaken canyon place and start a small ranch up in the roost his name was jb burr that is b-u-h-r not b-u-r-r like aaron burr who you should vote for if it's 1800 uh along with brothers two of his brothers they started sort of shaping the land a little bit making it not quite so untamed and they founded what would come to be known as the three the three b ranch one b for each burr brother 
And troughs were built to make use of the roost spring water uh, so livestock could hydrate more easily. Of course, they had to supply this ranch. And a portion of the roost was fenced in, like they were really trying to settle this place. And when Burr's foreman uh, position turned over, the ranch headquarters also moved. So uh, this is one of those things where there are, there's like where the ranch is, but the headquarters is sort of more like a mobile thing. It's not necessarily in one place. It's where whoever is running the thing wants to be central to where he thinks is most important for the herds. So just in case that's unclear. Uh, and this new foreman, John Cottrell, eventually married the widow of another roost settler who had died while he was moving a group of horses. He had raised uh, and moved into Colorado to sell for mine work. So Cottrell built this cabin for his family at the roost, and he slowly expanded the markers of human beings actually being there. Uh, but the family didn't permanently stay at the roost. They eventually moved on to the more populated area of Hanksville, and a man named John Moore took over as the foreman. I think you mean Jack Moore? Oh, sure. A man <laughs> named Jack Moore. <laughs> But Jack is a nickname for John. Often. It is. Uh, so it's this, not like this happens every single time we record, and our producer Noel takes it magically all out <laughs> because he is a sorcerer. Uh, and this change in personnel to uh, from Cottrell to Jack Moore was actually pretty significant. It enacted a pretty big change in the nature of the roost because it really seeded the start of the wild bunch. Moore was friendly with a number of outlaws who all seemed to know exactly where the 3B ranch was and that they could show up there and that they would be welcomed and they would have shelter and water and their needs met. And eventually a number of the outlaws who became well acquainted with the 3B's hospitality would be the ones that formed into Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch. I like how it seems like it was some kind of like ranch and outlaw farm. I think that was not uncommon at the time. Like a lot of places were, you know, it was an unsettled wild time. So if you had a friend that was maybe a little dicey, but, you know, if he showed up, you'd take care of him. Sure. You don't do that for your friends? You should be hospitable. Oh, oh you're on the lamb? I have cake. <laughs> <laughs> I think at this point it might have been more like bourbon. Well, bourbon cake. Bourbon cake. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Jack Moore was this tall, dark-haired guy, and he'd also gone by the name of D. And he was an excellent horseman and even better tracker. So uh, as with the foreman who came before him, he moved the headquarters of the ranch and he built a shack in Burr Pass, which would be closer to where the horses fed. He also added a tent and uh, and he ended up with more and more people to shelter. It was this mix of ranch hands and outlaws and outlaw ranch hands. Yeah, uh, there was one thing that I read that suggested that he only ever hired one actually honest ranch hand, that the rest were sort of people that were looking for a job while they kind of let the law situation cool off. <laughs> they let the heat die down. Yeah. <laughs> and while his new location for the headquarters was closer to feed for the horses, it really wasn't the best spot for water. It's one of those things where you find yourself scratching your head and going, really, is this a valid trade-off? The horses actually had to be driven to water once a day. Like, they just didn't have a continuous source. And that sometimes water would be carried in from a nearby spring as well. So it seemed like he was making a lot of extra work. But uh, it couldn't have been too rough because the camp that he set up was where the 3B crew and all of the ranch hands for quite some time camped for more than a decade. It seems like 10 years of wasting your time. Right? <laughs> so I stuff to do. <laughs> not driving the horses back and forth to water. Eventually, Jack Moore's wife, Nora, and her brother, Monty Butler, moved from Colorado to join Jack at the Roost. And Monty and his family didn't stay more than a couple of years before they moved back. But Nora settled in. Uh, Burr really liked her, and she would 
There's some screaming happening. <laughs> they really like Burr and Nora as well. Apparently so. I mean, who doesn't really? Uh, so he really liked her, and she would uh, look after him when his asthma flared up. And she added kind of a touch of refinement to the ranch by decorating a little and uh, insisting that some of the men exhibit some manners. This definitely feels like the plot of, like, a Western. Yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, I mean, she, it was, she just didn't want him to, like swear while they were you know all having meals together and she didn't want them to just put their boots everywhere like classic sitcom level stuff but the really lovely thing is nobody seemed to begrudge her that they were like oh yes ma'am uh and while most real outlaw work happened in warmer weather because snow obviously creates a number of problems in terms of making a quick getaway on not slippery surfaces and not being just followed by your footprints right and being easily tracked because you leave footprints in the snow uh, Jack had this insight, knowing that the winters were a time when most of the ranchers actually stayed in their safe and warm homes and were not at the headquarters of the actual ranching. And they did not often, if ever, actually make it out to their camps to check on things. They kind of left it to the their employees that were a little bit, you know, sort of rougher around the edges and could stand that sort of uh, situation through the winter. And so he took advantage of this by often moving herds in the winter. So by moving, what we really mean is stealing. (laughs) Uh, He would basically mix up heads of cattle from one ranch and another and break them up and move them around. And this meant that if the owners did come out and check to see what was going on, it would seem like most of their cattle were there and doing fine. Uh, I started to wonder if this is where the slang term for rustling actually comes from, because that seems like, I mean, not this person inventing it, but like that this practice of kind of mixing up the cattle, I couldn't figure it out, but... Uh, this wasn't unusual. Herds moved around, uh, and most ranches had several herds, and they didn't go check on them all every day or anything like that. Um, so once Jack had kind of shuffled them around a bit, he would move them away farther and sell them in Colorado, which is not California. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like uh, to liken it to modern day. Like if you have ever had one of those high level executives in the place where you work that is not hands on, they kind of go in their office and shut the door. And then the middle managers are really running the show and know what's happening. It's kind of like that. Like those people that owned the ranches often, could, they didn't know their herds by sight. Like they couldn't say, oh, I know that that cow and that horse. And that they were just like, oh, yeah, you've got this covered, right? And they would go, yes, sir. So they scooted their animals <laughs> away to uh, illicit sale. So eventually, though, the rustling did catch up to Jack Moore. In 1898, as the Burr Ranch was actually closing, he ended up shot while he was fleeing from another rancher whose livestock he had stolen. Uh, in a lot of cases, this is sort of described as like they would, you know, realize in the spring that some of the flock had gone missing, and they would kind of shrug it off and just write it off as a loss. But they started noticing a lot of the a lot of the herds under Jack started to vanish. (laughs) And maybe he was really bad at his job, or maybe he was just an outright thief, uh, and they realized that. So Moore's wife, Nora, and J.B. Burr actually ended up together, uh, and they headed for Texas, but not for long. They ended up dying, unfortunately, in a railroad accident the following year. So we will now get to the most famous person who is associated with the roost, but before we do, we'll stop for a word from a sponsor. (laughs) 
Learning is something that we constantly look forward to. It's one of the best parts about our job, and we bet that you love to learn as well. And that's why we are still just in love with The Great Courses Plus. And we want you to get in on this love, too, because there is always something new to learn there. The Great Courses Plus offers a large library of engaging online video lectures in so many topics. They're presented by really amazing, award-winning professors, and you can learn about whatever interests you. So whether it's history, which you're obviously into if you're listening, or religion, or cooking, or learning another language, they're all available, and they add more courses all the time. I love it when I get a little notification on my phone, uh, an alert that they have added new content. I always go and check it out, even if it's not something I think I might be into. It's just really cool. Uh, you can watch anywhere at any time. You can start and pick up again from any device. So whether you're using your mobile phone, your tablet, your laptop, or even watching on your TV, you can sync it all up. We have been investigating the Skeptic's Guide to American History, which is a really, really interesting look at how we perceive American history and how there have been some myths and some mis- misconceptions along the way that have kind of shaped the way history has been told. But those aren't really the clearest lens to be using. So uh, we want you to sign up for The Great Courses Plus today because they are giving our listeners a special offer. You can get an entire month of unlimited access to all of their lectures for free. So don't wait. Start your free month today. Just sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. Remember, that is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. And you too can be learning more all the time. So we're going to talk about Robert Leroy Parker, who you may know who that is. Uh, He would come to be a central figure in the lore of Robber's Roost. Parker was born in Beaver, Utah on April 13th of 1866. Beaver, Utah natives? (laughs) Who knew? Where, Where is that in relation to here? Okay. Oh, all right. Now we know. Beaver, apparently a very happening spot. Um, his Mormon parents, Maximilian Parker and Ann Gillies, were both from immigrant families. Uh, they had made their way to Utah from Britain 10 years prior to his birth. And while the couple had a pretty promising start, they were kind of setting up their home and it looked like they were going to be doing okay as farmers. A really brutal winter in 1878-1879 wiped out most of their livestock. And the Parkers really struggled to regain that lost ground for a long time. However, they had 12 more children. Uh, (laughs) Robert started working as a ranch hand when he was just a teenager, and it was through one of these jobs that he met up with a man named Mike Cassidy, who was a ranger with a kind of side business. Hey, I'm going to do it to you again. Oh, why? Because he's not a ranger. He's not a ranger. He's a rancher. Yeah. (laughs) You're so pretty. I am. Tracy is legitimately one of the smartest humans I have ever met. So when I tease her, that's... Apparently, I'm illiterate today for some reason. Uh, so Mike Cassidy was, in fact, a livestock rustler. Uh, I even printed this out really big so that I would not have this problem. Uh, okay, so Parker looked up to Cassidy and working with him as a part-time cattle rustler uh, in the 1880s, Uh, Robert hid the livestock that he was moving at Robert's Roost. And Cassidy had taken Parker on because he was uh, young, he was strong, he was not afraid of hard work. He was willing to do the work of trail-breaking groups of horses as they moved them, which is not easy, uh, to their final sale point. And because Parker had been responsible for handling his own family's livestock, he was really already pretty skilled in all of this. He just didn't need a lot of effort to be gotten up to speed. So he was a really good employee, for stealing 
Uh, <laughs> and he made some of those early runs through the area with the experienced Cap Brown that we mentioned earlier, and they were both working for Cassidy at that point. In 1884, after working a variety of ore hauling jobs and this brief foray into working as a butcher in Rock Springs, Wyoming, Parker, who was too reg- or too restless for a regular job, uh, decided to make the move into full-time illegal work, uh, and he became Butch Cassidy, allegedly choosing this name uh, after his mentor in wrestling, and then as well as the nickname Butch from his brief time as a butcher. And for the next several years, he worked on several ranches and also wrestled livestock, and he would often move them through various points in the outlaw trail. And in June of 1889, Cassidy and another man that he had met wrestling cattle, this is apparently the friendliest job, like, (laughs) you just have your pals that you wrestled cattle with, uh, named Matt Warner, robbed a bank in Colorado. And it was the San Miguel Valley Bank, located in Telluride, and as this incident is cited as Butch Cassidy's first bank robbery, this is something of a point of historical pride for Telluride. (laughs) And the site of the crime, which is now an office building, is actually marked with a plaque commemorating it today. That cracks me up. Yeah. This, on, is, on this is where spot. crime happens. <laughs> uh, Cassidy and Warner had both spent some time in Telluride, including some time spent racing horses there the previous year. So they knew this area, and they had been se- able to set up these horse relays for a clear escape plan. Uh, and they cut in some accomplices on their takes so that they could uh, have their assistance along the way. Yeah, one of the cool things that Butch Cassidy did was he would set up these horse relays. Like, he wouldn't just sort of take off after a crime and run his horse into the ground. Like, every 20 miles, he would have somebody standing by with fresh horses so he could trade off and not have to be basically, like, riding an animal that was exhausted and just completely stack the deck in his favor, which is... I mean, he's doing illegal things, but it's pretty genius. <laughs> and they made off with $20,000 in this robbery. And their hideaway, while the heat died down, was none other than the craggy, unwelcoming landscape of Robber's Roost. And as the incident is cited as Butch's first bank robbery, uh, I mentioned that it is a point of, of pride. Like I said, Telluride loves to tell this story. They have parades about it. Um, <laughs> one of those I of- kind of want to go to, like, the Telluride robbery parade. Right. <laughs> I picture a lot of people, it's like Comic-Con, but everyone's dressed as a bandit or a cowboy. (laughs) Like, they're all either in the black and white stripes of, like, a criminal, like an imprisoned criminal, or they're in the 10-gallon hat. Those are your only options. Sounds good. Uh, Is this where we are in 1894? I got distracted with thinking about a parade of outlaws. Uh, In 1894, Butch was charged with stealing a $5 horse, and he was found guilty. And it's possible that this was actually a setup, that he had purchased the horse from somebody not knowing that it was stolen. Uh, And had that been introduced in the trial, that could have changed the outcome. He wound up serving 18 months in prison for the crime, then he got out on good behavior, behavior and maybe also a promise to the governor of Wyoming that he wouldn't keep stealing cattle and horses from the ranchers anymore. Yeah, there's also uh, some historical theory that part of why he got out early was that they realized that they had kind of messed up in the trial and not disclosed that he may have not even known he was purchasing stolen goods, which would have made him automatically innocent. Uh, so unfortunately, though, when he was released in January of 1896, he jumped right back into his life of crime. So any sympathy you just had, like, you can get rid of it. Don't feel guilt. Uh, but wrestling was more or less behind him. So his criminal behavior after prison was pretty much focused on robbing banks and trains. Uh, also, probably easier than moving herds of animals through really horrible terrain. 
And this is really when the Wild Bunch formed, uh, though it was always a fairly loose association. Yeah, and they didn't really run willy-nilly into their robberies either. They were all very, very carefully planned under the leadership of Butch Cassidy. The robbers' roost area and the other hideouts in the outlaw trail also really factored into these plans in really important ways. For one thing, the men could store supplies and horses in these getaways and hideaways so that they would have everything they needed to survive when they uh, were done with their job. And then they also had the means to run and hide when it became necessary. I, uh, while we were talking at lunch today, I likened Butch Cassidy to like, uh, Tracy's dreamboat of a Wild West figure because I think he really would have loved a good spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> like he was such a planner, which Tracy also is. And he really was just meticulous in laying out everything he was going to do. Uh, and additionally, having these predetermined meetup places arranged meant that the men, after they committed a crime, could scatter in different directions because they knew where they were all going to meet up. It made pursuit by authorities extremely challenging. And, of course, these spots on the Outlaw Trail remained very difficult to reach with only a few key points of entry. Uh, and those were difficult to manage without a pretty high degree of familiarity. So even if someone were to chase someone into one of these spots, if you don't know where the trail is going to turn or get steep or get weird, you're in a lot of trouble in a hurry. So uh, very often Butch Cassidy is named along with the Sundance Kid, and we don't really know when they met for sure. The Sundance Kid was Harry Longabaugh, and he most likely started appearing at various points on the Outlaw Trail the same year that Butch Cassidy was released from prison. Uh, and so a lot of criminals and gangs hid out along the Outlaw Trail, and they would also sometimes team up. So it's likely that the two of them met through some kind of cooperative crime network uh, sometime in or shortly after 1896. And we mentioned that there were some ranchers settling this area. And you may wonder why they seem to be okay with all these outlaws hanging out in their hood. Uh, and it seems that at this point, the bandits who liked to hang out there really had a pretty good relationship with the people that lived there. Again, they had moved away from rustling. Uh, and they were really moving on to the more lucrative robbery business. They just didn't... There wasn't an adversarial situation there at that point in time. Maybe they were contributing a lot to the local economy with their stolen money. They were. I think we mentioned that later. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I read this like six times before we came in here. Uh, So most of you have probably heard that Butch Cassidy was really known as being a nice guy. Uh, Some of the Wild Bunch cohorts tended to be a little more violent, but he really didn't seem to. And allegedly he even cut some of the robber's roost residents in on his fortunes and he would give them money, help them pay for their land. He made allies of all of them by treating them really well. And to Butch Cassidy, if you had to kill somebody during a robbery, you were doing a bad job. Uh, He really insisted on very careful casing and pre-planning for every heist that would help him avoid ever having to kill anybody. So he would just be stealing, not murdering. In his eyes, it's a victimless crime. We'll just steal from rich dudes. You'll sometimes hear him referred to as sort of a Wild West Robin Hood. Because he was. There are people who, you know, came forward at various points and said he helped me pay off my land when I was struggling. And he, you know, helped buy horses when I had trouble with my my ranch. And so he really had made this amazing, not only a network of thieves and criminals that were willing to work with him, but also perfectly law-abiding citizens that were very comfortable having him around. So... Kind of the best of both worlds. Uh, 
In the late summary, summary, uh, in the late summer of 1896, Cassidy, along with Elza Lay and Harvey Logan, robbed the Montpelier Bank in Montpelier, Idaho. Uh, while the Sundance Kid is often discussed as though he is Butch Cassidy's best friend, Elza Lay was really that person. Uh, in real life, they were very, very, very close. Uh, his name was actually William Ellsworth Lay. And they were so close that people that really knew them well wondered which of them was actually the brains of all of these operations uh, because they worked so well together and they would trade ideas. Like they really had what would today be considered like an optimal office relationship. <laughs> uh, they just, they didn't have like ego that troubled either of them. They just had like a great equal partnership and they could collaborate really well. So we're going to talk about the two major heists that eventually led the Wild Bunch to break up. But first, we're going to have another word from a sponsor. You and I have been really candid that we attempt to make healthier choices, but also are tempted by food often. (laughs) I love delicious things. It's just the truth. Me too. Uh, But... One of the awesome things that helps us have delicious food that we don't feel like we're needing to resist is NatureBox. NatureBox delivers tasty snacks made with simple ingredients right to your door. So you always have something better to snack on without having to feel guilty about it. They have more than a 100 delicious snacks to choose from, ranging from healthy to indulgent, all with no artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Uh, I am a big fan of every lentil loop that exists. (laughs) I have yet to find one I don't like as well. Yeah, salt and pepper lentil loops are are a longtime favorite. So go to naturebox.com slash history, pick your snacks, and enjoy. It is that simple. And one of the best things about it is there's there's so much variety, constantly adding new snacks. Plus, if you ever try a snack you don't like, Naturebox will replace it for free. Right now, NatureBox is offering you two free snacks when you go to naturebox.com slash history. Avoid the guilt and go to naturebox.com slash history to get two delicious snacks for free. This offer won't last, so get your snacks today. That is naturebox.com slash history for two free snacks. And now we will get back to our story. Starting in early 1897, this was several uh, months after the Montpelier heist, Cassidy, Elza Lay, and their respective lady friends, that was Ann Bassett and Maude Davis, holed up at Robber's Roost to uh, ride out the end of winter. And it's very likely that during that time, Butch and Elza were planning their next big robbery. Also, if you ever want to look up Elza Lay, he spells it like Elsie. Did I say that earlier? Okay. I don't think uh, so. Yeah, it's like E-L-Z-Y, but it was pronounced Elza, apparently. Uh, it's in the notes in all capital letters, just so neither of us misses that. In April of 1897, Lay and Cassidy held up the Pleasant Valley Coal Company in Castlegate, Utah. And this robbery took place in broad daylight at a train station, and they came away with $7,000 worth of gold. And the next two big robberies on the part of the Wild Bunch were so massive... That in some way they kind of spelled the heyday, uh, uh, the end of the heyday of Robber's Roost as a bandit hideout. So though we should point out uh, that there is some ongoing debate about the level of Butch Cassidy's involvement in these two. There is evidence on both sides of that discussion. But regardless of whether he was actually at both of them or one of them or even neither of them, they definitely impacted his life because he was associated with them. 
The first was on June 2nd of 1899 near Wilcox, Wyoming. Six men commandeered a Union Pacific train, the Overland Flyer, and they dynamited the baggage car. The roof and the sides of the car were blown off, and they managed to steal more than $50,000 in cash, gold, and other valuables. And the second big robbery took place on August 29th of 1900, and the target was once again a Union Pacific train, this time near Tipton, Wyoming. And it was the same M.O. The bandits used dynamite to blow up a safe in one of the cars. They snatched everything of value that they could, and then they took off on horseback. And what I didn't include in these notes, but I should mention, is that a lot of people will tell you when these come up, particularly if they're into uh, bandit lore, that they really were like into overkill with the dynamite. <laughs> like they went way further than they ever had to. You shouldn't have to blow the roof and sides off the car to get no. into the safe. Uh, and they did the same thing again. It does make a good shot in a movie though. Yes. And there's actually a photograph of one of these trains that's just kind of a blown out like skeleton of a train. It looks like a line drawing where a train once was. Um, and while the loss was initially reported... As less than $60, in truth, it is believed that the Wild Bunch made off with more than $50,000 and that the railroad was, in fact, very concerned that if they revealed the enormity of this heist, that, uh, one, it would evidence the lack of security on their trains, and two, one of their big businesses, which was moving expensive and valuable things back and forth, would completely vanish. We had this whole conversation at Lent's where I was like, Holly, this says $60, but this says (laughs) $50,000. Is this $60 thing a typo? No. Yeah, I think uh, one of the reported numbers was actually $52.80, which is oddly (laughs) specific and ridiculously low. So after the first robbery, an $18,000 bounty had been placed on the Wild Bunch, dead or alive. And after the second, the heat continued to build. Detectives from the Pinkerton Agency came in. Uh, There was an an array of posses who all went on the hunt for the Wild Bunch. uh, And the crew in various iterations was still kind of doing some robberies. They became a lot harder. And the men, uh, for the most part, started to put some distance between themselves and the outlaw trail during this time because people knew they hung out there. So they regrouped briefly in Fort Worth, Texas. And if you have ever seen, uh, there's a really famous picture of Butch, Sundance, Will Carver, Harvey Logan, and Ben Kilpatrick, and they look crazy, just insanely dapper. They look so handsome, every one of them. And they look like businessmen. Uh, That photo was actually taken while they were in Fort Worth on the run. Uh, It became nicknamed the Fort Worth Five photograph. So at this point, their jobs, their jobs (laughs) as thieves, uh, were getting more and more difficult because of the notoriety that they had developed The Pinkertons were starting to close in. Butch and Sundance made the decision to leave the country in 1901, and they headed for Argentina. And after they set out for South America, the roost sort of lost its appeal as a hideout to the other outlaws. Without Cassidy's leadership and his propensity for planning all of these uh, pretty successful robberies, uh, the members of the Wild Bunch, who were still surviving and also not in prison, kind of fell apart. So whether or not... Uh, Butch and Sundance died in South America or made their way back to the United States as a matter of debate in that movie that I thought <laughs> they were just characters from. They, they, spoiler alert, get killed in a shootout in Bolivia. And that's a standard history that was told for a really long time. There are actually graves of them in Bolivia. But I uh, churned up this one thing, and I wasn't, I just didn't have the time to go back and verify all of it. But apparently there was actually an exhumation. We know we all love exhumations, right? Uh, there was an exhumation performed, and those 
those remains were tested and they were not Butch and Sundance. Uh, they were not believed to be Americans at all, in fact. So the people that we thought were buried there as Butch and Sundance aren't. So that gives a little more credence for the fact that they possibly made their way back to the U.S. And there are some reports of people that will say that they saw them in the U.S. and that they had visited their families. So uh, throughout its time as a criminal haven, uh, lawmen of every stripe had attempted to run down the outlaws who were known to hide out at Robber's Roost, but most of those efforts went without reward. Uh, it was simply too difficult to navigate the area, like we said, for those who did not know it extremely well, and finding someone who was hiding there was difficult even for an accomplished rider if they didn't know their way around the outlaw trail specifically. Really, most people who were working for the authorities did not really care about chasing down anybody who was in robber's roost. It was rumored to be incredibly well fortified and exceptionally defended, and part of that reputation was built, of course, on lots of tall tales and outright falsehoods that had been spread around it. Um, According to the account of C.L. Maxwell, who was something of a wannabe criminal, uh, in spite of the fact that he was nicknamed Gunplay, the roost... (laughs) had kind of an outlaw militia that was guarding it, and it had 200 men as that outlaw militia guard. Yeah, that's uh, basically just a big fib that he was telling. Uh, they did have amazing lookout points there that they could see people coming that the people coming could not see them at all. But in this account that C.L. Maxwell put together, it was in a letter that he sent to Utah's first governor, uh, Governor Wells, which Maxwell penned while he was in prison doing time for a bungled bank robbery. Like we said, he was not the best criminal. Uh According to him in this, the Roost had a really sophisticated defense system. They had plentiful ammunition. They had landmines. They had tunnels. They didn't have this stuff. Um, they had some of this stuff, not all of this stuff. And it bears mentioning that while Gunplay Maxwell really yearned to be a part of the Wild Bunch, he was never really welcomed into the group. He seemed kind of like a little bit of a poser. <laughs> Uh, and they were like, that's nice. You're not one of us. He's like the tag-along character. Totally. He's like, Hey, Butch, guys. hey, Butch, hey, Butch. Can we go? Can we go now? Can we go? I can totally help you rob some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're wondering what happened to Butch's old friend, uh, his best friend, Elsa Lay, he was in prison when Butch and Sundance left the country. He had been found guilty of robbery and murder, uh, and this was in a wild bunch holdup of a train near Folsom, New Mexico. He eventually was pardoned after helping to defuse a riot in which the uh, warden's wife and daughter had been taken hostage. After he was released in 1906, he lived a pretty much law-abiding life until he died in Los Angeles in 1934. Yeah, he's like one of the, I mean, I guess you could say he's one of the success stories of Robber's Roost because so many of these guys just did not make it into their advanced years. They just didn't survive that long. Their lifestyle was not conducive to longevity. Um... And then we're going to end on this really lovely poem that I found. So Joe Biddlecombe, who had a ranch in the heart of Robber's Roost Territory, 65 miles, uh, which is about 105 kilometers south of Green River, Utah, is said to have written this poem about the roost. And it appeared in the 1938 book, The Outlaw Trail, A History of Butch Cassidy and His Wild Bunch. And whether this poem is truly Joe Biddlecombe's work or someone else's, is sort of a nice, lovely way to summarize the way that the roost was seen by people living in the area at the time when this activity was going on. And it reads in part, this isn't the entirety of it. In the eastern end of Wayne County, there is a lovely spring. The robber's roost is its name. To it, fond memories cling. One drink of it, you lose your hope. Two, your religion's gone. Three, you'll want to rob a bank before another dawn. (laughs) 
So that is the story of Robber's Roost. Yep. Uh, which is sort of a wonderful piece of history that is right by you guys. So, uh, we love it. Yeah. I love all of the good bank robbery fun stuff, even though I know that's not good to love. Kind of like talking about outlaws. Yeah, outlaws are always fascinating. And this is kind of an easy one where you don't have to feel as guilty because Butch Cassidy was such a, a nice guy in many regards and he did abhor violence. Uh, so it's a little easier to be comfortable saying, oh, I love all these robbery stories. <laughs> We should mention, uh, as a wrap-up, that one of our audience members told us that she actually lives in the Robber's Roost area, and that poem that we read at the end was actually the work of Joe Biddlecombe's wife. So, yeah, we want to once again thank Salt Lake Comic Con for inviting us to be part of their show. They do such a wonderful job of putting together a really vibrant convention with an incredible staff. It's amazingly well-organized. The convention center where it's held is beautiful. The area where the convention center is located is beautiful. Uh, we had a great yeah, time. Yeah, it's a, a wonderful show. I love it, love it, love it. I love the people that work it. I, I love being there. So thank you, thank you, Salt Lake Comic Con, because we had a wonderful time. Uh, and now I think Holly has a little listener mail to close us out. Yeah, uh, this one is a shorty. It's a postcard, and it is from our listener, Lisa. She says, Dear Holly and Tracy, greetings from Denver, Colorado. So it's kind of close to the area we were talking about today uh, in the podcast. I have no idea what condition this will arrive in, but hopefully it will be legible, as I've been wanting to write you for some time. I absolutely love the podcast, and I recommend it to everyone. Thank you for the many hours of entertainment and learning. I thought you might appreciate this little piece of colored fashion in gratitude for your content. Thank you, Lisa. So she sent a beautiful um, postcard with some Art Deco fashion on it, which is wonderful in and of itself. But what I really, really loved, any of you that have listened to Listener Mail for very long have probably heard me say at various points on the curve that when we get postcards, often some postal stamping has obscured some or part of the message or a person's name. So Lisa did this amazing smart thing, which is that she laminated her postcard so nothing could obscure any part of it. So she did a, the perfect job. It absolutely worked like a charm. I don't know if there's any uh, chagrin on the part of the post office at people laminating things, but it sure did keep any postal marks from obscuring anything. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Lisa. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across pretty much any social media uh, network with the tag at Missed in History. So that's Twitter at Missed in History, Facebook.com slash Missed in History, Instagram at Missed in History, Missed in History Tumblr.com and Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. Uh, if you would learn, like to learn a little bit more about history on your own, you can go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com. Type in almost any historical thing in the search bar. You're going to churn up a load of content. You can also visit us at MissedInHistory.com, where we have a back catalog and archive of every episode of the show ever of all time, from its very humble beginnings when it was just a short little thing, uh, all the way through to now. You can also find show notes for any episode that Tracy and I have worked on together. So we encourage you, come and visit us uh, at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
we are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.